0: Hey everyone. How you guys doing? (sighs) All right. I am gonna be honest with you guys. We are gonna be covering sixteen verses of the Bible tonight. Yeah, we got a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, it is exciting. It's the Word of God. It's really good stuff. Um, But we've got a lot of ground to cover. And so I am uh, just letting you know that in advance that uh, I have cut as much as I can um, while trying to be faithful to what the Spirit um, is leading us towards in this passage. So with that in mind, let's jump right in. Sound good? Cool. Let's go. All right. So if you'd have asked me when I was eight years old what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have let you know that I wanted to be the CEO of the Walt Disney Company. Now, yes, seriously. And um, I, I don't know if I would have gotten the nomenclature correct, like the Walt Disney, I probably would have just said like Disney. But um, I, I remember like researching Michael Eisner's salary with his bonuses so that I could properly envision what my life would look like as the chief executive officer of Disney. But it wasn't that the, it was the money I was after. It's what I believed leadership gave you the opportunity to do, which was to do things your way. And I want to do that with Disney, right? To make decisions about which rides would get built, um, what new parks get developed, which movies get made, which stories get told. Like eight-year-old Danny wanted to do that. I mean, this year old Danny still wants to do the same thing, but, um, and now that all makes total sense at the age of eight. Um, in which all forms of leadership that I had experienced or my interpretation of them was that they were the people with power that got their way. For example, my parents led our family and we did things their way. At least I thought, I realize now, not exactly the case, but it seemed like that, right? My parents would watch the news and there would be presidents or governors on the TV screen and they seemed to lead states and countries their way. So leadership could have been defined by eight-year-old Danny as having the influence and power to do things your way. The only qualification then for such a job is that, for that description, is having the ability to accumulate power and influence under yourself so that you can do things your way. Now, was eight-year-old Danny too far off? For those of us who um, work in various career fields, isn't that kind of like something you're supposed to care about is moving up the the corporate ladder, right? You're supposed to be seeking promotions because the higher you get, the more decision-making power you have so that you can do things the way that you think is best. And so our entire infrastructure is built off of the premise that you want to get to the top. As high as you can on the ladder so that you can affect change the way that you believe is best. And we see this message from politicians and business leaders. Influential people get their way. And and if you happen to like or support the kind of people that are in leadership um, and you like their way, you like their way when it mostly lines up with your way, the way that you think things would be best and you dislike and you work against the kinds of people if you realize that their way doesn't line up with your way. See, the idea of the powerful getting their way, it's so intrinsic into our world, even into the foundations of our country, that there's this concept that we tried in America, the separation of powers in the three different branches of government, right? You have the executive, the judicial, and the legislative branches, and the idea is that absolute power corrupts absolutely, so you separate out powers so that nobody gets their way, at least like that's the ideal, right? Is that everyone has to do checks and balances to kind of monitor one another, and so that's kind of the understanding. And that is about as good of an effort as human wisdom has ever come up with so far. And it isn't perfect. In fact, it's not always even good. So, so isn't that exhausting? The rat race to accumulate power and influence, to get things to be your way in relationships, in friend groups, in family dynamics, in your workplace, in your community, in the world around us. Isn't that what the world is? Every, it's everyone out for what they believe is the way that things are supposed to happen. See, the world's vision of leadership is a race to the top. Is there a better way? Well, tonight we continue on journeying through the letter that we know as 1 Timothy. And over the last few months, we have covered a ton of ground in this letter. We're about halfway through now. And as we have continued to talk about during the series, the scriptures are beautiful. And for those of us who follow Jesus, it is our source of understanding of what is true. And there are some realities, though, when you look in the scriptures that are difficult to understand because they might seem strange or unclear or even frustrating the way that we think think things should happen or the way that the world articulates the way things should happen. So this is why it's so important that even in the midst of the unclarity and even in the midst of the difficult passages, that we continue to strive to interpret and apply the scriptures faithfully. And to do this, it's important that we ask not just the question, what does this passage mean to me? Which is kind of the easy, easier approach. You look at the Bible and you read a passage and you're like, oh, I'm, I should do that. Or I don't like it. I'm not going to do it. And then we kind of just leave it there. But instead, we start with the question, what did this passage mean to the original audience? So we have this opportunity to go on a journey of discovering these realities with three, three support systems. We have the Spirit of God inside of us as believers. We have the historic church that has gone before us. And we have the community of faith that walks alongside us. And those are three pretty cool opportunities that we have, right? Which is important to recognize and to realize whether it is when you are spending time in the scriptures uh, over your morning cup of coffee, whether it is when you are talking with a coworker in your break room, whether it is when you're doing lessons in school or... If you are teaching from stage, so before we get into this passage, let's briefly recap what we have discovered so far. So, so far, we've talked about how Paul, the author of this letter, is an early church planter who had 10 years prior to writing this letter had planted a church in an ancient city called Ephesus. Now, He had since moved on in his journey, but his love for this church has not moved on by any respect. So while he is under house imprisonment in Rome for his faith in Jesus, he sends his best pupil, a dude named Timothy, to this church in Ephesus to shepherd them and to lead them in the midst of some really difficult realities that are transpiring within their local church. Now they are targeting, uh, there is the biggest issue that is happening is there's a group of influential individuals who have made themselves leaders within this community. And they are leading and teaching false beliefs out of arrogant ignorance. So these are bad group of people to be around and they are seeping their brokenness into the entire community of faith. And they're specifically targeting those who are wealthy and uneducated with teachings that are going to attract those kind of individuals into supporting them so that they would grow in influence and that they would grow in wealth. Now, in their context, in the Roman world that Ephesus resided in, that's like the norm. That is the way that the Roman Senate operated corruption, power plays, manipulations, and literal backstabbings. Like, like that, this is kind of like part of the course for that world. So why does Paul call this out? See, the Roman understanding of leadership was that there were the rulers and there were the ruled. There were the ups and the downs. There were the overseers and the servants. And the rulers were those who would take power and they had influence and they would control typically at the highest levels with the control of the military. And so when you bring in a military into town and you say, I'm now in charge here, and somebody says, I don't like that idea. And they say, well, the strong people all say I'm in charge here. So now I'm in charge here. And you say, okay, I guess you're in charge here. Like That was the way that their world operated conquering scheming deceiving doing whatever it takes to the power required to get your way so these false teachers were fitting right in with the roman cultural context but the church is meant to be different see the church is meant to be an embassy An embassy is an outpost of one cultural context, typically a nation state, fit into the geographic borders of another. The church is never meant to fit in with a culture of this world. It's meant to be an outpost of a different culture, the kingdom of heaven. And it's to that culture that this embassy, the local church, is meant to live. And thrive, embodying the values, the mission, the hopes, the wisdom, the understanding of everything, including leadership, not as the world sees it, but as the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth. And see, this is why Paul takes these false teachers so seriously. They are pretending to rep the kingdom of heaven, and they are using all the broken tactics and schemes of the kingdom of this world. And that's a big deal. So this is why Paul sent Timothy. And this is why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy as he was going about shepherding this church. Now, tonight we're going to read about a kingdom vision of leadership and specifically the qualifications for those who are going to be leaders. But there's a passage right after the section that, that we're going to hit on before we get there. We, got, we hit on this in the early weeks of the series. Uh, this is in 1 Tim, Timothy chapter 3, verses 14. And we're going to start there because it kind of helps give us additional context into what Paul has to say about leadership. First, he gives his his purpose statement, why he wrote the letter in the first place. Leave it to Paul to go halfway through your letter before you actually tell people why you're writing a letter. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, What he's getting at is these characters, these false teachers have been behaving as if they represent a different kingdom, as if they are a part of a different household, a different family than the family, the household of God. But instead, Paul wants this church to understand that they're called to not follow the example of the leadership of this world and the way that this culture views anything and everything, but of the true king and the true kingdom. So then from that, Paul writes down lyrics to a familiar hymn in the early church, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. All right, on account of three, who is this? Hymn about one, two, three. Great answer, guys. You guys get a gold star in uh, Sunday school. It's great. Okay. Yeah. So this hymn is clearly about Jesus. So in other words, he starts by saying, great is this. Do you want to know what is truly great? Do you want to know what truly embodies the way in which we are called to live? Do you want to witness what leadership looks like in the economy of the kingdom of heaven? Look to Jesus, not to Paul, not to Timothy, not to the elders and deacons that he's about to mention, that he mentions right before this. Look to Jesus. See, in Jesus, we see the mystery of godliness in the flesh. Now, godliness, there's one of those Bible words that you can hear or read and you kind of just go, oh yeah, I know what that means. It means like, like being good, I guess. Okay, keep going. But see, godliness It's a beautiful concept, and um, it reminds me of moonshine. And I don't mean like the illegal beverage that started the sport of NASCAR. But what I mean is the light that comes to us each night from the face of the moon. Now, why does the moon provide light but not heat? Exactly, exactly. Uh, I heard the word reflect and I'm gonna go with that. Yeah, it reflects or radiates the light beams that are coming from the sun off of its face and we get the benefit of it on most nights of the year, right? The moon has no power in and of itself. It is specifically because of its proximity to the source of light that it's able to provide light to us. In other words, even when we don't see the sun, I don't know if you've thought about it this way, even when you don't see the sun, we still are the beneficiaries of the sun's beams because they're reflecting off the moon. Do you guys see where I'm going with this? Let me drill just a little bit deeper first. Okay. This is the mystery of godliness displayed to the world. See, godliness is embodying the character of God. So who is the best human that's ever embodied the character of God? Jesus. Jesus is the living embodiment, the manifestation in the flesh of the mystery of godliness. Before that, you might go, I don't quite get who God is or what he's like. And then you have Jesus on the scene and you're like, oh, like that. That's, that's Jesus. That's God. Because he's God. <laughs> So if you want to see the character of God, you look to Jesus. If you want to see what God's leadership, care, compassion, sense of justice looks like, look to Jesus. The Spirit vindicates him, meaning the Spirit is pointing people to him. The angels recognize who he is. The news of his arrival has been and is actively being proclaimed to the nations. He is being believed on in the world. He has been taken up in glory. What is God like? Jesus. Look at Jesus and you get to see what God is like. Now, how does the watching world who are living in darkness experience the life-giving light of Jesus? Well, they look to the moon. They look to the ones who are reflecting his light. See, godliness doesn't come from us simply trying to work harder to be like Jesus. But as we abide in him and by being in his proximity, we get, the benef- we get to be both benefits of his radiant light and reflectors of it to the watching world around us. The church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth meant to abide with Jesus to reflect his light to, the, to a dark world around us. And when the world looks at the church, they should not witness more of the same of the world's kingdoms, they should witness something distinct, something transcendent. The kingdom of heaven expanding on the face of the earth. The church is meant to be the reflection of the mystery of godliness to a planet of death. In this way, the way, they are, the, way the church is meant to operate and live in life together is the way of Jesus. And that should be true of an entire community. Now, do we live this out perfectly? No. Is the church filled with a lot of mistakes? Yes. But yet, this is the ideal. This is what God's desire is for his church. So it should, these, these realities should be, the realities to, to uh, emanate from the church as a whole. But what about its leaders? It should specifically be exemplified by those who are called to lead and and serve the community. Which is why right before this, Paul mentions two leadership roles within the local church. He talks about overseers and deacons. Now we're going to get into these roles in a second. But first and foremost, we need to understand how leadership is viewed in the kingdom of heaven if we are to see how these individuals are called to lead within the context of the local church. So these two phrases, these two phrases are being used here because they're common in the Roman world. So stick with me for a second. Overseers. That word's pretty self-explanatory. What do overseers do? They Good job. You guys are nailing it. This is good. Okay. They oversee things. They were the ones with power, prestige, influence, wealth. They had the ability to enact the changes that they wanted to and whatever things that they oversaw overseer, deacons. Now that's another word for servant. And servant is not, as you can imagine, was not a title that people were clamoring for at the job fair, right? Like not many people are like, oh, I can't wait to be a bond servant. It's going to be sweet. You know, the Roman cultural context was not a desire to serve, but to be served, they want to have servants and bond servants and slaves. Those are marks of status, of importance, of awesomeness. To become a servant was humiliating. The cultural qualification of a servant was to simply be without power for a while and see how long that gets you before you are in some way serving others. If you lacked power, you were subjugated to service. So the Roman cultural understanding of even things like humility, was that it was not a virtue. Pride and confidence in the Roman world, those were virtues. Humility was enmeshed with the concept of being humiliated. And servants, servants were humble because they were humiliated. Now, we know this from a variety of historical um, sources, but uh, one of my favorite ones comes from Jesus. Uh, In Mark chapter 10, he's talking to his disciples about leadership and correcting their misunderstandings because they had plenty of them. And Jesus talks to them in Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, at which point his followers have been like, oh, really? The, the Gentile overlords, like they, they oppress people. I see they had been oppressed for about a couple hundred years at this point, And they're like, yeah, yeah, for sure. We know exactly what the Gentile lords do. They, they lorded over people and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus acknowledged the Roman cultural understanding of oversight and servanthood. There are oversights, the uppers, the people who are wielding the power to get their way. And there are those servants, those who are getting pummeled by the way of another. And he explained to his disciples that this was not gonna be the way that his family operated. That is the outpost of the kingdom of heaven expanded across the face of the earth. These would not be the markers of their reality. See, instead of the culture's understanding of a race to the top, the culture of the kingdom would be defined as a race to the bottom. A race to the bottom of the org chart, which in his cultural context was servants and slaves, which is why he's using those phrases. So while the world around him and the world around us today is defined by a race to the top, where you can wield influence to have your way. The kingdom's vision of leadership is a race to the bottom where you can lay down your influence to love, to serve, and to do the will of the Father. And isn't it crazy that Jesus uses the most discarded role to describe himself. Did not come to serve, did not come to be served, but to serve. And he said, and this will be true of you as well. If you follow me, you are following me to the role of servant. And he later would instruct his disciples again, when they still don't get the message, to, that they were called to demonstrate this actively by the sacrificial way that they served one another and loved one another. And that is exampled by the washing of feet, which was a task reserved for slaves and servants and bondservants, the lowest of the low. And he's saying, and this is what I've come for you. And this is what you have, must do for one another. And so this is Jesus' vision of a kingdom leader. Servant as he is servant. Now, before we continue any further in this passage, we need to remind ourselves of why the scriptures matter. That when we hear God's voice within them, we get to discover his character and his way that he has called us to live. Now, just like last week's passage, this is a passage that has been used to devalue women, silence women, and oppress women. Let me make this abundantly clear. This is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not domineering. It's not self-serving. It's not boastful or proud. It is sacrificial, biblical love. Misusing this passage completely misses the complementing paradigm for which men and women are meant to display the image of God in partnership together. So I want to, before we go towards scriptures on these particular leadership paradigms. I want to on, um, first and foremost apologize to you if you have ever experienced difficulties with any, with any other local church context, any ministry that has been attached to some of these realities. I'm deeply sorry for those realities for you. But I just want to just apologize on behalf of other churches and claim that we at Mosaic have been perfect on this. So, our elders have had our eyes opened after, over the last couple of years into our ignorance about the importance of inviting the voices of non-elders into important de- decisions, especially and specifically women. And this has been to our detriment for our own churches, for our church's health and not just for our women, although absolutely for our women, but because of the lack of their voices in these spaces, it has affected the entirety negatively. So on behalf of all of our elders, I want to apologize and repent of that behavior. As elders, we don't believe that we are called to just lead by examples in our righteousness, but also be the first to repent when we miss the mark, to be the chief repenters of the church. So we apologize. Our desire as elders. Of Mosaic Church is to continue to grow, to learn more and more how to lead in the way of Jesus. Our desire is to deeply express the value, the voice, and the giftings brought to the table by the women of our community. Now, this passage does not specifically unpack some of the common questions that are associated and relevant to church leadership. So after I'm done unpacking the passage, I'm going to circle back around uh, to the distinctive beliefs and practices that Mosaic Church holds around church leadership. As well, I'm going to update you a little bit more on what we have been doing as elders to ensure that we grow to lead more and more in the way of Jesus today and in the future. So, I don't want you to think that I'm missing that. Um, We're just, it's just, I'm preaching the passage. So, with this in mind, hopefully you are blown away by the gospel beauty of this passage as I have been, as I've been studying over the last month. So, verse 1, chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Pause. So why does an overseer matter? Like, what is it? So the scripture uses the word overseer and elder interchangeably. Uh, Specifically, if you look in the letter to Titus, uh, those two phrases are used interchangeably. Overseer was primarily used in the scriptures when writing to a Gentile or Greco-Roman audience because of familiarity in their cultural context elder was commonly was primarily used when writing to a Jewish audience because of ancient Near Eastern cultures and customs which typically were laid out in terms of familial language. So for example in the Old Testament there's the 12 tribes of Israel they're all 12 different family tribes and and part of the leadership structure especially out in the wilderness is, was that they would have elders that were picked from each tribe. And so that eldership concept is familial language. Now, you might look at that and go, oh, the family one sounds a lot better than the overseeing when we Like, like that's a good one that we use that one around here. For sure, I agree. The only problem is that if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that the nation of Israel still got leadership wrong every which way, and na- they were a nation filled with infighting, suspicion, deceit, um, uh, and all kinds of terrible things. So that's kind of the reality, that both Jews and Gentiles both got the chance to own terrible understandings of leadership. Now, as a church, we use the term elder when we're describing this role. So you might hear me jump between these two phrases. Don't be confused um, between that. So an elder or overseer desires a noble task is what Paul says here. Now, here's why that is an odd statement. Maybe other overseers think you have a noble task is you are overseeing stuff, but the the common person who is being oversaw, they didn't think of that as a noble task. They, When they saw overseer, they didn't see noble task, they see dominating task, power hungry task. Noble is something worth being in awe over. How is it possible then that Paul is associating a title with deceit and power struggle to possibly be something that is noble? So Paul's gonna answer that by giving us the job qualifications for the role. Verses two through seven. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if... someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Okay. There's a lot there, right? Isn't that quite a list? Notice what's not on it. Competency, Strategic thinking, ability to manipulate outcomes, charismatic leadership. None of those kinds of things are even hinted at in this. The only thing that's close to competency is able to teach. But that's just one of the markers. Now, not all of those things I just mentioned are bad, right? Some of those can be quite helpful in terms of leadership in general. But Paul's focus in writing this is displaying all the things that the false teachers lacked primarily godliness. They weren't like Jesus. They weren't living like Jesus. They weren't using their influence like Jesus. Paul is writing that those who are called to oversee the church are meant to be defined by lives that radiate proximity with Jesus that they must be above or approach the husband of one wife. And by the way, that not necessarily requires marriage because for example, Paul, unmarried dude, is writing to Timothy, unmarried dude. But if that you are within the context of a marriage covenant, you'd be demonstrating faithfulness and godliness in fulfilling that covenant of marriage. They would be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. This is an intense list. We can do a message about each one of these items probably, right? But again, notice what they are each demonstrating collectively. The way of Jesus. Look at that list. This is Jesus. This is the godliness of Jesus. A life of godliness. A life that radiates proximity with him. See, Even when he gets to this one, the ability to lead your home and your family well. That might seem odd in our cultural paradigm, right? Typically for most jobs, that's not on the application, right? In an interview, that's, I don't know exactly if that's illegal to ask, but it feels like it. If you're like, hey, what are your family dynamics like? And then your job's actually based on whether or not you got that, right? Like that's weird. So why is it here? because Paul is writing about a holistic life of servant leadership, a complete life marked by godliness, not perfection, yeah. Yeah. but that you love those closest to you with sacrificial biblical love, that you care for them well. Because if you're, if you're not doing that with your family, then what are you gonna do with the church, Paul says? So if that's the case, and there is literally no aspect of your life that is not relevant to the conversation. And now when, as an elder, when I read over this list, I am humbled every single time. And not because I'm so humble and so godly. At least. It's because I'm so imperfect. It's because I don't consistently live out every item on this list Perfectly. And, and I realize also this list isn't even meant to be exhaustive. It's not like if you do all these things, but then you have other sinful habits in your background then oh, then you're good. You've passed this list. No, this is just a sampling, a case study of the type of leader, the type of character, the type of godliness. But, it, but at, at its best, and when I'm at my best, all a list like this does is it leads me in my heart and my mind to draw near out of desperation to God. This is proximity to him. This isn't me. It's him. Now, that's different than if you would have asked me when I, um, a few years ago, if you would have showed me this list and gone, gone, hey, Danny, do you, where do you think you fit with this? I'd have been like, oh, I'm one of the most qualified people you could ever imagine. Like, guys, I was pretty arrogant. Um, some of you guys know that. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I thought I was pretty, pretty qualified, you know? Hence why I think it's really good thing that he says they must not be a recent convert. Because what he's getting at is one, it can lead, as he says, to arrogance, to be puffed up, which would be a snare of the devil. Absolutely would have been early on in my faith. Secondly, Recent converts are newer on the journey. It's just kind of a part of the way it goes. They are learning and discovering much, still discovering ancient truths and learning how do they apply to life. Now, hopefully none of us ever stop being a lifelong learner of the way of Jesus. But when you are newer to the faith, you are likely learning much all at one time and it isn't solidified yet. You're learning. And for those of us who are called to the role of elder, we have some pretty big things to do, including guarding the doctrine of the church. As he says here, being ready to teach. So it's important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. That we've asked the hard questions, that we've stared into, the doubt, into our doubts, and not that we have somehow magically overcome all doubts, but that we would be honest about the struggles, that we would ask the hard questions and that we would persevered through it with Jesus. Now, more than that, he then goes and says that they need to be well thought of by the world around them. And that makes sense as well that you aren't that that you haven't been up to all kinds of shenanigans or gossiped about in all kinds of ways by the world around you because the watching world is watching. They're seeing is there things different about this community? In the world around us. This doesn't mean that elders and overseers are somehow uh, more magically, more Jesus-like. It means that they need to be the kind of individuals who are consistently drawing near to Jesus and desiring to emulate that godly character to a community so that they would be encouraged and discipled in the faith. Now, Paul now moves on to a different role within the local church, the role of a deacon or servant. And deacons, as we mentioned before, this is kind of a countercultural concept to use that language. Like overseer, why would, why would they use that language? Terrible, terrible word usage in that culture, right? That's a, a bad word. You wanna know another bad word? Servant. Nobody wants to be a servant. Why didn't the early church come up with brand new words to describe these things, right? Instead, they borrowed ones from their existing cultural context. To voluntarily sign up for the label of servant, it was unthinkable. Servants hoped that one day they would escape the title of servant. I mean, who's trying to add that title to their papyrus resume, right? I don't mean the, the font. That font's awful. Um We get the origins of deacons in the book of Acts chapter 10, when there is some shenanigans that are happening within the local church and in the church in Jerusalem, the apostles are going about like discerning with the spirit what they're supposed to be up to next. And all the while um, the rich people are coming earlier because they get off work earlier and they are um, enjoying the communion feast, leaving none of the food for, uh, for those who are servants and tradesmen who are coming in later and, and, so there's no more food when they get off work later at night. That's really not a great way to love one another, right? So the apostles tell, ask for a group of individuals and they, they, they get seven individuals and appoint them as, as deacons, as servants. Stephen, who is the first martyr of the church, is one of them. And their job was to hand out bread. They were the bread hand routers and they did it with faithfulness. Now, the list of deacons would go on to spread throughout each local church in the, um, in, uh, the early church, including uh, in the book of Romans chapter 16, it mentions Phoebe, who is, the letter, who is a deacon and was a letter carrier of the letter to the church in Rome to them and was the first to read it and explain that to that church from Paul. And these were all individuals who willingly and joyfully took on the role of leading servants. They were showing the way because now this doesn't mean that if you are not a deacon of a church, then you are not called to serve. That would be silly. We are all called to serve one another, but deacons lead the way in serving. They're the first ones to say, where's the need? I got it. Like the answer is already yes, where? Let's go. And so deacons in the early church have filled a multitude of needs and there's not like some exhaustive list of what they, what they did in the, in, the, in the scriptures. Instead, it was based on in this context, what do they need at this time? Let's go. What is it? I'm in. So the early church took a role despised in the world's culture, servant, and has elevated it to an official example of godliness to follow the example of. Isn't that weird? So Paul then gives a list of character qualifications for them. Verse 8, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not, nor greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gaining good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Once again, what a list, right? What a list. Isn't it interesting that a role that nobody wanted— gets a character bar that's this high. Each item on this list is once again pointing us not just to some magical checklist, but at a life, a holistic life that is radiating proximity with Jesus. That they would be individuals who are dignified, using their words well, to build up others, not tearing others down. That they, are not, that they are not currently in the midst of addiction to things like wine, that they have gone through some sort of a process to test them, to ensure that their faith, their life, their mind, and their heart are ones that are fully surrendered to Jesus and learning ever more to be more surrendered to Jesus. Again, we are getting the image of individuals who have demonstrated love and godliness in the way that they care for their families well. How can you lead the way in serving your community if you aren't first leading the way and serving those closest to you? Also countercultural at the time, Paul then goes on to explain that deacons are deserving of good standing." Here's why that one's weird. "Deacons should be honored," Paul is saying. "They should be honored for their faithful service." "I don't know this for a fact. But I have yet to find any research that's concluded that there was national uh, servant day where you like honored your servants in the Greco-Roman world. It didn't happen. Like there was, they didn't. There was no version of honoring and appreciating those who were serving. It was an expectation. They were a commodity. You treated them as such. In their culture, servants were not honored. They were used up and spit out of a system that needed willful and sometimes unwillful human sacrifice. But Paul. It's continuing on where Jesus left off. Take a role that nobody wants. Give it a list of character qualifications that requires strength and ability that is beyond your human ability and comprehension and can only happen from abiding with Jesus. Welcome in. To the world, this makes no sense. In the kingdom, it makes all the sense in the world because it's a race to the bottom. It's a race to the bottom. So we covered a lot. Let me do a quick recap. Paul has taken a despised phrase of overseer and has imbued it with gospel beauty, saying it is a noble task because there are those who use whatever authority, whatever influence they have been given to serve their community, not focused on getting their way, but discerning both what the needs of the community are and how the spirit might lead them into filling the needs of the community. Then he takes the disregarded phrase of servant and he imbues that one with gospel beauty, saying that they are worthy of honor because they are those who the community would look at as an example of a life of godliness, serving the church as Jesus served the church. Neither is elevated above the other, but both complementing the efforts of the other to fit in to different needs of the community in different ways and uniqueness and beauty so that the church could be built up and that the kingdom of heaven can expand. Now this brings us to some of the questions that are related to the leadership in the local church that passages like this, while this one doesn't specifically speak into, relates to. Now there's not enough time in this space to unpack all the scriptural reasoning for these positions, but if you'd like to, I'd love to grab coffee anytime to dive deeper than simply a quick summary answer that I'm about to give here. Because at a certain point, as an adult, as Brady mentioned last week, you're going to have to figure out what you believe on a number of issues. And a lot of these issues are what we might refer to as distinctive beliefs. Distinctive beliefs aren't core beliefs. In other words, they're not essential to salvation or to the core of Christianity. They're not going to inherently lead you down a unwise or sinful path. Distinctive beliefs are beliefs that are relevant though, and they do matter And different churches and different denominations take a myriad of positions on throughout the the history of the church. So when it comes to these realities, and specifically the realities of the roles of elders and deacons, are these spaces reserved exclusively exclusively for what a plain reading of this text that we read tonight would indicate just for character qualified men or not? um, We would consider this to be a distinctive belief. Now at Mosaic, we believe and practice that the role of elder is the lowest role of servanthood that is reserved for biblically qualified and affirmed men. Individuals who are leading in sacrificial service of the church. They're not just CEO type shot callers. They don't exist to get their way. They exist to faithfully serve the community, to listen well, and to help discern with the spirit what it looks like to shepherd the church today. To do this, Um, To do this, our role of elder requires us to not just be sorry for the past of what we have not, that we have not invited the, the voices of women into decisions that we have made as elders, but to make structural changes to facilitate these realities and live within that. And over the last year, we have done exactly that. And so this is why we have begun to include a diversity of voices into every space of eldership decision making including uh, non-elder women and even some men, and to get their experience, their expertise, and their unique perspectives, including the shaping and forming of uh, doctrine and belief statements that we actively work on. As well, we don't disregard churches who hold a different distinctive belief on and practice on this topic. But instead, our responsibility, our role is to humbly submit ourselves as hopefully every Bible-believing, gospel-centered church does to the most faithful understanding of the scriptures that we can uncover, attempting not to allow our theological positions to lead us to interpretation, but allow our faithful interpretation to provide us with our positions. And do we, do we, do we, will we do that perfectly? Probably not because we're human. But by God's grace and by his spirit, we'll we'll journey more and more closely to Jesus. Now, as a church, the best we can faithfully discern from the fullness of the scriptures is that leadership though is not meant to be occupied by men alone. Instead, women and men are called to complement one another in leadership together in a diversity of ways and spaces in every avenue of life from the family to the workplace to the local church. And regard, So regarding deaconship at Mosaic, we believe in practice and reality that the role of deacon is meant to be for both men and women who lead in the community in faithful service in a diversity of ways and take the opportunities to build up the church where they can. At, specifically at the Disney campus, we have 18 active deacons right now, which I think is so cool. These, these, these men and women are just phenomenal examples of godliness and service and they are worthy of much honor. These men and women demonstrate a life of godliness, a life radiating proximity to Jesus. This is the kingdom ideal of leadership, a race to the bottom. Not one over the other, fighting over controls, manipulating ways to ensure that my voice is being heard or respected, not getting our way, not struggling for power and not infighting but instead believing and understanding that God has graced each and every one of us with influence in varying degrees in a diversity of spaces in our lives. So whether you ever serve in leadership of a local church or whether you serve an, at Walt Disney World as a coordinator or leader, whether you are, have peers in your workplaces or in your community, whether it's influence you wield in your friendships, in your family dynamics, wherever God has given you influence, each of us has influence. And what we are called to do is to live according to Jesus' call that we would use whatever influence that we have been given to become the servant of all. So the question is, will we, will you, will I use whatever influence that we have been given to love and to serve one another the way Jesus loves and continues to serve us? I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up. And here's what I'd love for you to do for a moment. Imagine what the world would witness if this were the reality for those of us who follow Jesus. That the way that the world interacts with you and me would be as a servant, one who has come to care for to use whatever influence we have been given to build up others. My hope is that this would be the reality for us. And I hope it's yours as well. That as a community, that as we go into all the different facets of our lives, these would be our realities. But this kind of godliness is not gonna come from me and it's not gonna come from you. Because when your elders and when your deacons fail you, there is one who has come before who does not fail us. He is the one who the hymn is about, who has manifested godliness in the flesh, who has been vindicated by the Spirit, who's being proclaimed to the nations, who has been believed in the world, who's been glorified. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight. Lord, each and every one of us in this space needs you, whether we are actively and currently following you or not, whether we've turned our lives to you or not, we are all just in desperate need of you. I know in this room, there are individuals who lead in local ministries. There are those here who lead in business and industry in political environments, and especially right across the street at Walt Disney World. Lord, we pray for those who follow you and who have been given the opportunity to have influence in leadership in various spaces. I pray, Lord, that they would use that influence not to be served, but to serve. Not to get the best parking spot, but to take the worst one. To be the kind of individual who is actively seeking To serve Lord let your church be an embassy of your kingdom's culture let this local church and all the other local churches here in Orlando be churches that radiate your love your kindness and your service Lord I confess how desperately I need you right now And I know I'm not alone in this space. Remind us of your character, of your goodness, of your kindness. And we thank you for the ultimate example of the mystery of godliness made flesh. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.